Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another week from the great, beautiful state of Wisconsin, which we can now officially declare was won by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Yes. (laughs) So when we recorded... (laughs) When we recorded last week, it was still not uh, fully done, but super exciting. Uh, We will talk more about the efforts by uh, President Trump and a number of Republicans here in the state to try and cause all sorts of mischief with the Wisconsin election and more broadly with the national election. Uh, But we first, I need to introduce our panel means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yes. And Robert Craig, executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Good day to both our digital and our radio audiences. All right. So very, like, look, last Saturday, obviously for this country and for a lot of us who had worked extremely hard on the election was a huge day. And uh, we know it was a big day for a lot of folks, Um, but, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the election as we go through the show and pieces of it and what's happening, but like, we are actually going to spend the first part of the show talking about COVID-19 and what's happening post-election because we continue to be in the worst, (laughs) worst time of this whole crisis, this whole pandemic ever. Uh, President-elect Biden has been clear that he would like a mask mandate. And uh, Claire, I'm obviously interested to hear your thoughts about the, you know, the potential of the new presidency and, and how we might be able to go at COVID-19. And I just do want to state here in Wisconsin, we record Thursday, um, it remains record levels. And as of yesterday, the state even created a new category uh, that apparently I believe was like three times higher than our previous high category, which all but seven counties qualify for. Claire, um, obviously a lot of excitement. We have a new president-elect opportunity to potentially change some paths as to what we're doing here with COVID, but uh, want to get your, uh, your your thoughts on on the current situation. I, I agree that um, the prospect of having a new president who will actually listen to science about um, how this virus spreads and the um, precautions that um, should be um, uh, imposed on everyone in the country to uh, keep the virus from from spreading, um, things like wearing masks, um, like having somebody like that in the White House is uh, really exciting. Now, I'm a little worried, of course, because we still have uh, a few months before um, President-elect Biden will be able to be sworn in and start doing things. Uh, but I'm really glad that he hasn't wasted any time and has immediately released um, some of his plans about how he's going to address um, the pandemic. Now, there's more things that need to be done, right? Like the the federal government hasn't, for example, given states you know massive influxes of money to help hire contact tracers and um, you know other things that will help um, you know catch catch viruses spreading between people before they go very far. Um, but, um, but I'm sure all of that is, uh, is on his radar and will um, uh, hopefully have some actual real strong leadership at, um, that is taking this pandemic seriously, um, or at least um, 
seriously beyond how it's you know affecting their own um, pockets. We're we're going to the most horrible part of the pandemic right now, as was predicted by a number of public health experts. And we have a terrible situation because we have a public that is in large part, huge swaths of it, non-compliant with what needs to get done. And we're heading into Thanksgiving. And it's because of misinformation. Most people follow direction from trusted leaders. And when leaders are lying to them for their own uh, personal benefit or perceived benefit, then we have the situation we have. Uh, we had a poll nationally that only 49% uh, would comply or wouldn't. 49% would not comply with a uh, stay-at-home order. You know, we have, if things are so bad, we probably need at least targeted closures, and we may need a stay-at-home order. We may need one that is better enforced than the one last time. And the question is, people can, can scream that that's a violation of freedom. Your convenience does not match up well to people's lives. We are losing 12 large airliners per day. And because it's going on quietly in secret where family members can't even be with their loved ones, it doesn't have the same impact on people. And so this is a horrendous situation. And a lot of the stuff Claire talked about that Biden is uh, going to do is going to require money. And so this does depend either on Mitch McConnell or winning those two Georgia state Senate races, which is going to be another major political uh, brouhaha coming up on January 5th. Uh, but he is naming a COVID team that's full of the best folks like Michael Osterholm from University of Minnesota is one of the best, but a whole lot of others. And he is, but he is not being given transition resources right now. And, uh, and so we continue to have the violating norms of over 200 years of presidential successorship. I, um, I want to mention one thing uh, that I also think is becoming a real huge issue that I want to get your comments on. And that is, and we have talked about this, if you do not have adequate testing and treatment, you're cooked. And we are in a situation here on testing that is absolutely dire. Um, we, Claire, you mentioned um, uh, uh, contact tracing. Here in Milwaukee, you're told you got to go do your own contract tracing now. They don't have capacity to keep up with the contact tracing. Testing, Aurora dropped, you know, has cut back on its testing. We have resources running out for testing in a month. And local governments are supposed to pick up the tab for testing. <laughs> I mean, uh, and when the National Guard leaves, I think it's like around December 7th, something like that. We don't have here in Wisconsin, you know, pr preparation uh, to take up the testing. I mean, we're testing over 4,000 people a day at Miller Park. The lines are astronomical. Um, this is a real issue. Uh, Claire, um, comments on the testing because... I mean, if we don't have enough testing where people can get it, 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 it's just, it makes all this incredibly challenging to even be partially opened or even have any theory of that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think, but you know what, testing is just one, it's just one piece of it, right? Um, I mean, people are getting tested at uh, really high levels, and yet the pandemic is is spreading. So, so testing is like the it's the foundation, it's the base levels, the floor of what we need to be doing. And um, you know, I think people are um, are less hesitant to get tested overall than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. I think you know the 
fears about how much it'll hurt and all, like all those things are, have been debunked. Um, and you know, the, the city and the county, cause the city of Milwaukee is, is what I know, um, is running two sites here. They're incredibly efficient. The county is running the one at Miller Park, incredibly efficient. The National Guard sites around the state, incredibly efficient. So we have the testing um, down. Now, it's unfortunate that it still takes a few days to get results. Um, but but to your point, I think the real issue is the fact that like people's behavior hasn't changed and and the virus has spread out of control in a way that we can't do contact tracing. And so there is uncontrolled spread in the community and people don't know that they've contracted and are spreading the virus um, for a long time. Um, the other thing I'll add is that there's also a health equity angle to this. And I, um, I read a report by Kaiser Family Foundation, which is an incredible, um, highly reputable, nonpartisan um, health research think and think tank. And um, they did a study that found that um, um, white people and people of color um, are getting tested at about the same rate, but that people of color, um, especially um, Black, Asian, and Latinx um, Americans, have been waiting to get tested until their symptoms are much worse and are need critical care at the time of their, more likely to need critical care at the time of their testing um, by uh, many, like 10 percentage points. Um, and so there's also this health equity issue about the fact that like we can't forget that there are people, the most vulnerable frontline people in our society, um, who are still forced to be in what we call essential, but now are basically frontline jobs that make it difficult or impossible to do things like be socially distanced or work from home. And so I hope that Joe Biden and our state leaders also have an eye to how we are going to um, serve in a more equi equitable way um, low-income and people of color who are more um, vulnerable to the virus in our economy. Robert, you get the last minute before we go to break. I'll, I'll just add to what Claire just laid out before we go to break, that here's something we're not questioning. Other advanced countries aren't just having testing as a buffet. If you feel vulnerable, you feel concerned, go get a test. They're testing the people who need to be tested. We don't have anything that is a public health strategy whatsoever. And this is freedom run wild, because you don't have a right to risk the death to everyone else for your own personal convenience. You just don't. With that, we got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about the COVID-19 pandemic that again, continues to be at record rates here in Wisconsin. Mentioned earlier uh, that Wisconsin yesterday uh, set a new level uh, for tracking COVID rates, which is significantly higher, I believe about three times higher than what they were had as their highest rate. And again, a number, almost all of our counties uh, fit into that. So we are at incredibly high rates. And uh, Governor Evers this week issued a bunch of new uh, new executive orders around uh, around dealing with this, and you know really tried to convey the incredible sense of urgency with which and dire situation with which we're in. However, uh, because of the political situation, uh, the orders are are more incredibly strongly worded suggestions. Uh, Robert, 
Uh, the state of situations, obviously, here in the state continues to be a struggle because of uh, the dysfunction with the Republican legislature refusing to even talk about this with the governor. So uh, thoughts on the executive order? And again, uh, any, and, and any thoughts particularly about here at the state level? Yeah, and I think we need to tell truth here. Uh, this is like, this is a war kind of situation. So Governor Evers is a knight in armor compared to the Republicans, but I can't call it shining armor yet. So Grady's using the bully pulpit. I think we should have had more of that earlier, but I'll, I'll take anything we can get now. And I think there's more he could do that way. I'll just say, for example, the uh, all the broadcast uh, television stations just made an absolute killing in this election being a battleground state. We should demand they put on free public service ads explaining the situation over and over again on primetime for free, just for example, uh, to, in order to fulfill their alleged mission to the community. Uh, so there's all sorts of things we could be doing. Uh, he's being clearer, though, uh, as far as what needs to happen, uh, though, quite and with an executive order, I think he should be stronger on the executive order. I think a lot of it needs funding. I think we need to be enforcing a mask mandate, uh, not just uh, because it's being violated in many parts of, of, of the state, depending on how red it is, because it's been made political by a certain president, a certain president who's leaving. Uh, and uh, But the legislature, Voss, has hinted he wants to work together. We'll see. He did this pivot right before the election. We'll see what they're willing to sign off on. I mean, we have mask mandates in Ohio from a Republican governor, in Utah from a Republican governor and state legislature. And it's a Republican state legislature in Ohio as well. So let's see if our Republicans are willing to be at least as good as the Republicans in all red states, uh, the, the ones that are actually taking action and aren't completely uh, Fruit Loop. Um, but there needs to be money. If you look at the numbers, uh, folks, uh, we have a 104.6 uh, new cases per 100,000 people right now. Just so you know, the World Health Standard says anything over 25 is red, triple red alert. So we're at quadruple the red alert level. Uh, our infection rate or our, our reproduction rate, which is how many cases per case is created, um, is well over one, which means it's rapidly spreading. Uh, and we have a positive test rate of nearly 17%. And we have contract tracing at 2%. So where is the giant workforce? People need jobs. And, and here's what, I, what my biggest concern, why I can't give Tony Evers a, 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 a shining armor. He should put forward the legislation that would be the gold standard. He should put it out and be clear. And, I, the, and this, oh, the, the, the Supreme Court will overturn it. They'll never do it. We need to be saying what needs to happen right now uh, and, and making it very clear to the public and use every means possible at compliance. Because here's the thing about the, the vaccine. Really exciting, 90% uh, success rate. Uh, more details are coming out now. It's 98%, 90% success rate after one week. You need four weeks minimum. We don't know if it's 90% after two weeks, after three weeks, after four weeks, or after six months. Second, we haven't gone through the safety protocol yet. Two months is the standard the FDA has put forward, which many people consider too little. We don't have that, so we don't know if the vaccine is safe. Uh, then, so the FDA is being attacked now because they, they're going to delay approval till Christmas, but they, at a minimum, they need to do that. 
and then it has to be distributed at, at 100 degrees below zero, and as a result, no one has the freezers for that, so we need a massive program to build the freezers to hold this vaccine. So we are not going to get this uh, through this winter, through the worst part of the pandemic, and it's on us, social distancing, mask wearing. We need to close all the bars and indoor dining, and then we need to bail out the restaurant owners and bar owners and, and pay the salaries of their employees. That's what we need to do. That would save lives. We refuse to do that. Why? Because we won't take the Badger Care money, because we won't reverse any of the giant tax cuts that corporations got with no strings from Scott Walker. There's the money to do that and to save thousands and thousands of lives. So I will, I will pull out my favorite idea that, that Robert just put forward. And this is something that nobody is talking about and I think is just flipping brilliant, which is that um, our government, and I would say the federal government probably because one, they have more money and two, they're actually like meeting um, um, and doing their jobs during a pandemic. Um, should that is a sobering thought that they're <laughs> actually, uh, they're meeting, they're doing something. Right. Uh, um, you know, baseline competency. Um, and uh, yeah, so I love this idea of paying um, businesses like bars and restaurants um, and their employees to close so that they can still, um, you know, earn their living wages and um, uh, not allow their businesses to, to or be forced into the position of deciding, you know, to play their part in slowing the pandemic or losing their business. Um, or keeping their business, they're paying them to be closed um, because you're right. It is something that we are asking them to do at great sacrifice um, for the, you know, in a certain way, right? And that's an idea that nobody's talking about. And I just, I just love that idea. And I think that there is absolutely um, a precedent in this country for doing that type of intervention. Um, I mean, if you think about. Um, uh, you know, the New Deal during the Depression, the government put tons and tons of money into just like paying people um, and to into keeping them afloat. Um, and so um, I, I think there absolutely would be a precedent for that type of program at the federal level. I think it's just brilliant. Um, I'm going to be, um, so I think Robert presented a very sobering view of where the vaccine is at. Um, I'm going to present a slightly more optimistic take um, just so that we we don't end on a like super down note about it. Um, I was listening to, our readers will not be, or listeners will not be shocked, um, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, this morning. Um, and they were interviewing their science reporter um, about the vaccine. And um, he said a few things that Robert said, which are sobering, but he also said a few positive things, which were, one, um, the FDA did not really think that um, a, because no one has ever come up with a vaccine for a coronavirus before. Um, and so they thought they would get a, a vaccine that would be maybe like 50% effective. And they told all these pharma companies, if you can come up with 50% effective, let's do it. Um, and so to have um, a company come out with a 90%, at least preliminarily appearing to be 90% effective vaccine is really promising and that they did it by um, sort of inventing a new way to, um, instead of inserting a dead bit of the virus into your body, inserting a different piece of its genetic material into the, into the body that triggers a um, sort of two-step autoimmune response, um, that is super um, innovative um, and that there are also um, 
multiple American pharmaceutical companies are using the same new method. So if this one vaccine looks promising, then it's likely that other companies' vaccines will also be promising. So it could be that we end up with multiple similarly effective vaccines on the market over the course of the next year, um, which could dramatically increase our capacity to produce and distribute vaccines from tens of millions to hundreds of millions. Um, and But of course, you know, all the issues that Robert laid out are real. Um, and I would also add that we as Americans need to be holding our government and pharmaceutical companies accountable to ensure that those vaccines are affordable to people. Because of course, we know that they don't work if we just if they're priced out of reach of most folks. So we need to not be giving monopoly control, patent authority, and price setting authority to these drug companies because they're just going to set the prices through the roof. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Let me follow up quickly. And that is, look, Donald Trump's the one who wanted to compare this to a war like World War II. Can you imagine if we fought World War II this way, then the, uh, the, the, the show about the Nazis winning would be true. We stopped making cars. So we could make military equipment. People had to do with the cars they had. We, uh, we took the food and sent it to the soldiers. People had victory gardens. There was rationing of food, right? All sorts of consumer products, toasters, uh, washing machines, everything else put on hold so we could win out. Massive numbers of people being brought into war industries, including women, which was great for women, but was a shock to a lot of people. Everything to win the war. Here we're like, I find the mask uncomfortable and I think it's a conspiracy. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, we've become an adolescent nation. And it's one thing to have a leader like Donald Trump and Republican ideology that is so uh, pernicious and power hungry. But the 72 million that voted for this man after his performance, uh, more of them need to have sober second thoughts. And they can. Most people denied voting for Nixon after Watergate, people who voted for Nixon. So people can change, but they need to change soon to save lives. And with that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We have uh, been talking extensively about the current COVID-19 situation and just, you know, Look, we're at levels here in the state of Wisconsin, I believe now, that are higher than when New York was at its worst uh, early on in the pandemic. Um, we've mentioned numerous times that we're at rates that um, should should be shocking. Um, we have our hospitals, um, many of them now approaching 100% capacity. Some states, I believe South, Carol- South Dakota, the governor is now allowing asymptomatic healthcare workers to work. Um, with, so with, that should, with COVID. Asymptomatic with COVID, with COVID yes. diagnosis. Yes. yes, yes, yes. So you, in South, it's not, I, I'm, I'm not sure any hospitals have taken the governor up on that, but that's just to give you an idea you, you, you've of the seen situation. Christy Nome, their, you've seen Christy Nome, their governor. She's a, she's a treat. Yeah, so the situation is uh, incredibly uh, serious, and so we, we're just going to continue to talk about it. Um, one of the things that I'd like to get comment uh, from you both on, though, too, is this is all happening within the broader context of the Affordable Care Act, <laughs> which is the one that's providing health care for you know, millions of people and has, has become sort of the, the baseline backbone of our healthcare system here in the country if you don't have access to healthcare through your employer um, is under attack, right? Supreme Court 
uh, last Friday, I believe it was Friday, Claire, you can give us an update, uh, started uh, taking up, is taking up the case. Uh, so this issue is incredibly important. Also, there was new research that came out this week around the Affordable Care Act that found that another 3 million Americans have probably received coverage uh, through the Affordable Care Act uh, during the pandemic. Um, Robert or Claire, any thoughts you have about, you know, just it's, it is obviously kind of odd that we'd be literally having the discussion whether we're going to throw out the Affordable Care Act in the middle this gripping pandemic, but that's where we're at. Thoughts, Robert? Well, I'll just say quickly, Claire Maywa, dump, jump into details. They couldn't repeal it. They couldn't win two Supreme Court decisions. It, it, they've been completely, um, uh, kind of, can we say, um, discredited with the public. They lost the 2018 election and in part the 2020 election on health care. And look at the difference between this kind of right-wing Republican, it's a, it's a virulent strand, and Democrats. Democrats would never still be pushing this way. And then it's not just damaging the law. They want to take it all out. And then they want to say, we have a secret plan that we've never released. We're going to always protect people with pre-existing conditions. Well, you'd think we'd see a plan and why you keep trying to get rid of protections uh, for people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, the good news, and do not overstate this, is uh, most uh, Supreme Court observers are very reluctant to judge what will happen in a case based on oral arguments. But Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, of all people, uh, certainly sounded in the, uh, in the Q&A like they think that it can, be, it can be easily severed and that there's no real case for the idea that the individual mandate, which is not a tax because there's no fine because the Republicans took out the tax, right? Uh, which is why the lawsuit exists, because they damage part of the law. The law is functioning quite well uh, without it. And so it's hard to argue it's absolutely essential. And Justice Roberts just said, if, if Congress intended to repeal the whole law, why did they not try to repeal the whole law? Why did they simply remove the tax? There you go. So we're cautiously optimistic uh, that the Supreme Court will simply sever the uh, toothless individual mandate. But again, it doesn't take away with what Trump, the Re Republican Attorney Generals, William Barr, are trying to do. Claire, do you have any, any thoughts on, on this situation? Yeah, I'll say that originally uh, when the ACA was first conceived and groups like ours were doing advocacy around it, um, the individual mandate um, was viewed to be critically important, right? We had this concept of the three-legged stool where we said you need to have these protections and you need to make affordability and you need to require people to get what blah, blah, blah. It was like this whole package, right? Um, and what we found um, actually when the, um, the penalty tied to the individual mandate was repealed that actually there was a um, very only a very small drop in people opting out of the um, opting out of coverage and that um, overall people want to have health care coverage and they want high quality coverage and that um, I know you're shocked Matt, really you're shocked, people want health coverage this yeah. is Wait a minute, Claire. No, it's news, great, but it's a great point. It's a great point, right? Like, because you'd believe from hearing the other side that like this was just an abomination. Sorry to interrupt, but that was worth pointing out. Well, I just, I just add before Claire continues that it might have been necessary the initial sign up, 
because if you didn't have enough people, it might not have worked. So these could both be true, but it turns out once you have the system, you can remove it and it doesn't collapse, right, Claire? Yes, exactly. And that what is critically important is the protections that are in the ACA, um, because that's what that's what makes um, uh, coverage affordable for people because they can't be discriminated against for having a pre-existing condition and they can't have the price of their plan jacked up because they take really expensive medications or get really expensive treatments. Um, for example, you know, Citizen Action and Protect Our Care held a news conference this week with Governor Evers um, on Tuesday on the day of the Supreme Court hearings where we had two of our Citizen Action storytellers um, share their healthcare experiences and what the ACA has meant to them. And one of those folks is um, a, um, a man in his 30s from Milwaukee, Dennis, or um, Dustin, and he has a variation of hemophilia that requires him to get um, almost weekly transfusions that cost something like $13,000 before um, insurance. And he would have hit annual and lifetime limits before the ACA, which means that at some point his insurance would have said, that's it, that's all we have to cover. And he would just die. Um, and so that is the kind of thing that the ACA does is say insurance companies can't be like, that's it, we don't want to pay anymore for you this year, you're on your own. Um, or for your entire life. So like those protections will, it looks like stand. Um, and those are the things that the ACA does that are, are so um, incredibly important to protect. And that is actually, I think, making insurance affordable for people. for whom Well, uh, again, and it goes without saying the election was super important to have a president-elect Biden in case, let's just say, right, this case goes south. We'll be hopefully be in a position to better deal with the situation. Robert, I'm going to go back to you with this question. Um, we're going to have uh, our fundraiser next week on Wednesday, November 18th at 6 p.m. And starting at 6.05, we're going to be joined by U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin. I um, want to get your thoughts on potentially what, and we're going to talk with, with her about this, what are the potential opportunities around maybe even reform or improving, right? Let's, let's, let's be clear here. We don't want to just protect the ACA. We want to make improvements, but just the ability to talk about what might be possible in a Biden administration. And let's just say uh, the Senate, we don't know, it could be split or uh, it could be under Republican control. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating situation, actually, because uh, Biden, despite his career as a very mainline politician who has a lot of chinks in his armor, uh, is a very evolutionary politician who is relational. And he reached he, a platform which was a compromise between his platform and the Sanders platform, which is the most progressive since at least Harry Truman. And Bernie Sanders has rightly pointed out that if enacted, it would make him the most progressive president since FDR, which is shocking for a for Joe Biden. And so, it, but it's a problem because the left very, it's been very good development, including Citizen Action doing this, has campaigned on what we absolutely need to do ultimately. Like we shouldn't have private health insurance. We need a public system like Medicare for all, for example. But it would be very hard to get there in one step. And what we need to learn is, is that a huge step in that direction which is what Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal, the uh, congresswoman who sponsored the Medicare for All bill in the House, um, say it's the foundational pieces of Medicare for All is worth fighting for. 
and it's what we could get right now, but it would be a huge fight against the healthcare industry, against the other side. It would not only greatly make it more affordable, improve the subsidies, improve the quality of the coverage, it would create a Medicare option, a public option that's fully public, not insurance run, for everyone who doesn't have good insurance at work, including all the people who are left out of Medicaid expansion, BadgerCare expansion in Wisconsin, which includes Wisconsin, as we know. And uh, people could choose or opt for it instead, and employers could choose to use it instead of, like Citizen Action is forced to do, wrangle with the big corporate insurance monopolies. But it will be a huge fight, and we will have to unify with Biden's moderate wing, our progressive wing, in order to get it done. So it's going, there is huge opportunities, but obviously if whether we can do it in the first two years depends upon the Senate elections in Georgia and who controls the Senate. Well, folks, it's going to be a great conversation next Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Uh, Wednesday, it's Wednesday, November 18th. Again, the Citizen Action Fundraiser. We'll have a link where you can go uh, sign up. And again, we'll have a conversation with Senator Tammy Baldwin about the future of healthcare. Uh, we'll also be joined at 7 p.m. by Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, and we'll have a conversation about the state, right? We got a state budget coming up. We're going to take a break, and when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about the state budget, do a little preview, remind folks just how that process goes and what's at stake, and is there any opportunity for something a little better than what happened in 2018. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin Worst of the Snapchat. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin again. Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. State budget, folks. We're the election's over, and the next thing you know, you're staring in this state at our biannual budget. It's a big deal. It's where most of the most of the bacon, the pork, the money, the resources get told out, right? And it's absolutely critical because the budget reflects the values of the state and where the money goes matters. And so this is a critically important process. And uh, so we want to have a conversation about that. Before we get into the details, and there is going to be a hearing, uh, a listening session this week we'll talk more about. Robert, could you give us, and I want it to be one minute on the state budget process, uh, and then, oh, Claire, oh, Claire, Claire, Claire is desperately wanting to explain the process. One minute on, just to refresh our listeners exactly on the state budget process, how this works. One minute. All right. Um, the governor is- Okay, two. Two minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One minute. <laughs> The governor is hosting uh, budget listening sessions, um, and each one will have a different theme. And the first one is uh, was just announced, and it is happening on uh, Tuesday, November seventeenth. And the topic is health and healthcare. Um, so after the governor, lieutenant governor, do their series of listening sessions, um, he will, meaning the governor, will introduce a uh, budget in early 2020, at which point it will go to the legislature and the Joint Finance Committee, uh, which has a new co-chair. Um, Senator Alberta Darling is no longer uh, the Senate co-chair rep representative um, to the Joint Finance Committee. It's now Mark Line, I believe, um, from the Spring Green area. Um, and um, they will hold a series of listening sessions. Uh, usually they do those in person around the state so that different 
people from different parts of the state get a chance to go in person. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like this year, if it'll be virtual or if because they're in denial about the pandemic, they will still try to hold in-person events to be determined. Um, and then after that, um, the legislature will introduce their budget amendments um, and they could be regular amendments or they could do what they did last year, which is produce or last budget cycle, um, produce a omnibus bill that is basically sort of redoing the entire budget and then the joint finance committee will vote in a public meeting although they will not take public testimony at that meeting um, on those amendments at which point it goes back to the governor who can either sign it or veto parts of it and then we'll do veto votes um, and that process can take through the summer that's my one minute summary Woo! I think in college that might be a whole uh, lecture all day long so thank you Claire Robert to you I want you to comment on the this thought. So normally in this budget cycle, the joint finance committee process that Claire talked about is often the big show, or at least it appears to be the big show in terms of uh, where it goes back and forth, huge public hearings, which are ostensibly the point where the public is supposed to weigh in. For our listeners, could you talk a little bit more about how we want them to actually think about that process actually starting now, because the governor's budget is going to be really important for progressives and what's possibly on the table. Tell us more. Yeah, so the way we get progressive change is the popular voice replacing the corporate voice, the billionaire voice, the lobbying voice. And they've been in the in Madison with their lobbyists or doing it virtually, pushing their agendas on the administrative agencies and on the governor's office. Okay, uh, the public has been trying to win this damn election, right? Including all of our citizen action members and our supporters and friends and allies across the state. And so I think this time, because Governor Evers's budget last time, which was on a very short timeline, in, in full fairness to him. He didn't have his full team. In fact, he still doesn't have most of his cabinet secretaries even confirmed, which is something we, look, we have to look forward to at the national level if McConnell is a majority leader, uh, that he introduced basically a number of different budgets, like a corrections budget that looked like the Walker budget after promising cutting mass incarceration in half. Uh, so now he needs to do those things. But he needs to be engaged and needs to know that where the public is, and so do his allies in the state legislature. Uh, in other words, Democrats in the state legislature communicate with the governor, especially the uh, leaders. We now know who the majority leader is. It's Janet Bewley in the Senate, minority leader, and the assembly uh, minority leader is Gordon Hintz again. So we need to engage them, and I'll give you a couple top lines. Governor promised during the election and after that he'd do a badge care public option where everyone could buy into badger care and not deal with corporate insurance and have much lower co-pays and deductibles. You should call and ask for that. In fact, there's also a way to make that even better by taking an ACA uh, element called a basic health plan and going to 200% of poverty and therefore dramatically increasing the number of low-income people a lot of people of color, but a lot of white folks in Wisconsin during a pandemic. So you should do both. We would call it, we're trying to figure out how to brand it. Might be Badger Care, super public option or public option plus. I don't know. But just so you know, it has two elements, the public option. Uh, we should be asking for the mass incarceration movement. This is a racial justice moment and it, it, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, we should be asking for major progress on a Green New Deal 
in this budget and major investments to do so and major investments to put people like to work. They're saying that the 10 million people who lost their jobs in the pandemic won't get them back till 2024. In other words, those jobs won't be, not they individually, those jobs won't be recreated. So we have a, a long-term employment crisis now that needs to be, needs to be uh, dealt with through New Deal tactics. And I think Claire, I didn't want to miss it all, prescription drugs, uh, he did promise a prescription drug um, a price uh, accountability board. And uh, that was in the uh, that was in his campaign. He did not do it in the first budget. His task force on prescription drugs recommended it recently. It ought to be in this budget, and it's a huge issue. It was actually one of the dominant election issues. Claire, I want to give you an opportunity for any further thoughts on uh, what ought to be uh, folks ought to be uh, thinking about in this budget. I love that. I mean, Robert hit the big pieces, right? I mean, we've got to be talking about prescription drugs. Uh, we are super huge proponents of this idea of a prescription drug affordability board um, that will set limits on how much folks pay for expensive drugs. Um, it would it be uh, it's something that other states are doing now. Um, so we would not be sort of the first on the cutting edge, but we would be totally in line with what best practices are. Um, and it's a great issue that I think is not overly politicized. It should be a strong uh, bipartisan issue. Um, it's wildly popular too, isn't it, Claire? Tell yeah. Yeah, wildly popular um, across all, like I said, across parties, including, you know, independents and Republicans, right? I mean, everybody recognizes that in this country, pharmaceutical companies have, um, you know, too much power to set prices out of reach for folks, and that it is not just the federal government, it's also the state government's job to look out for uh, patients who depend on these drugs. So, uh, yeah, that is absolutely something that the governor should uh, put in his proposed budget, and that we would love for folks to talk about at upcoming um, budget listening sessions. Um, I would also add that the um, Governor's Task Force on Caregiving recently um, put out some recommendations and um, that is also something that um, that people across party lines should be interested in. Um, so things like higher wages and um, uh, healthcare benefits and paid leave for caregivers um, so that we can try to attract and retain more people to the field of direct care work and um, therefore address the caregiver shortage in the state. Um, so, so that is also something that um, I would love to see in the governor's budget. So folks, I want to remind you, uh, as Claire said, to kick this off, this is all getting started next Tuesday uh, with the Governor Evers and Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes will be doing this online listening session on healthcare. So it's an opportunity to go in and talk about exactly what Robert and Claire just discussed. This is very important. We need to get this stuff in the budget. It makes it very challenging if, if Governor Evers doesn't put this stuff in the budget. So we'll have a link. Please, please try to participate in that if you can. And of course, um, as Robert said, you can call the governor's office directly and let them know about what you care about. And there's other issues. We'll, we'll talk more, obviously, about the state budget going forward on this show. Uh, but we wanted to start to get folks focused on it because it is absolutely critically important uh, that there be progress made. I'm going to add one other thing just out there. I don't know that the governor's going to put it in. But I, look, I really do think it would be wise 
uh, and this hits on both issues, to decriminalize marijuana uh, in the state, both from a revenue source, but also decriminalization, right? Like it is a huge issue if you want to talk about what Robert said, starting to look at our astronomical incarceration rates uh, for something that like just we ought not do. Uh, that's another thing. But anyways, lots of stuff. The most important thing though, folks, is we have to be very active and involved in this process. As Robert said, it is the only way to balance the corporate interests that are lobbying every day. Every day they're out there working on behalf of capital. Uh, so we have to be working on behalf of our communities and the things that we need in order to make this happen. Um, now, but hey, before we go, yeah, Robert. Yeah, I was going to say, Matt, you know, I noticed our capable host, that would be you, didn't bring up all of the charges of election fraud. And I agree with you because it's all propaganda and, and, and ridiculous. And it reflects very poorly on the modern Republican Party and modern conservatism. And it's very damaging, but there's no point in going through and debunking it. It's just all ludicrous. Yeah, I, I was hoping we could spend some time on it, but I just felt the COVID stuff was huge. And we'll have links on our website, particularly what the Election Commission put out that very well goes through and lays out uh, in a factual smackdown, shall we say, of any sort of idea that there's anything pernicious going on here or anywhere. They've been virtually unable to prove anything. But with that, we really got to wrap things up here at the Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, we will see y'all next week. I want to thank, though, before we go, our producer, Brian Wilbridge, who throughout this whole year has continued to put out this show in extremely challenging times during this pandemic. So we want to thank Brian. And uh, From his that, bunker, every, Matt. From, from his, his bunker. bunker. That's right. Everybody, please join our fundraiser next week, next Wednesday night, 6 p.m. Senator Baldwin, Lieutenant Governor Barnes, we'll see you next week at the Battleground, Wisconsin.